So we are in a study in the book of 1 Peter. We're going to get into that in just a, a little bit. Hopefully you received some message notes when you came in. You're going to want to grab your Bible. But before we do that, and as the kids are uh, being dismissed, I want to take a minute and just uh, pray specifically for uh, some of the needs of our world. Um, obviously, so many of us have had our hearts just broken to see uh, the images coming out of, of Ukraine and, and uh, just the devastation there. Um, I wanted to let you know that there's a couple ministries, um, at least that our church has been connected with through the years uh, there in Ukraine. And at the end of the service today, we are going to collect a, a special offering that if you would like to to give uh, to help those ministries. Um, we would really appreciate that, and we'll be turning that around and sending it off. First of all, to Aslan Child Rescue, um, who is involved in so many places around the world. They've got uh, six vans that they've been driving supplies into the Ukraine, dropping into Ukraine, dropping those off, and then taking uh, women and children uh, out kind of as refugees there. And so kind of back and forth they've been going, and, and it would be huge if we could help with that ministry. Uh, we are also involved with the Odessa Theological Center seminary, um, which is down there on the coast. Um, Odessa is one of those places that is just kind of right in the crosshairs right now. The seminary is serving as kind of a, a safety place for people to come, and so they're asking that we would pray for their safety and that that would continue, and um, uh, that's been a great ministry. Uh, Steve Newman's gone and taught there, a few others from the church. I've never been there, but it's a, a really great ministry, and the church, um, under difficult conditions, is really thriving um, among the Ukrainian people, and so we want to join our brothers and sister specifically. And so I want to let you know that, and I wanted to ask if you would join me in prayer um, for that. So let's pray. God, our hearts do go out to your people around the world. Thank you, God, that you are a global God, that you see us and you are with us here. Um, and yet even in dark and difficult times, you were with people in Ukraine or in Tanzania. And right now our hearts turn to uh, the conflict and the, the war there in Ukraine, and we ask for peace. Father, we ask that good would triumph over evil. And yet we know, Lord, that, that in these days people have made a mess of your world. And so we ask for your forgiveness for that. And we also, Lord, look for the day when good ultimately will triumph over evil and all things will be made right. We look forward to that day when there is no war and weapons are laid down. And so, Father, we pray for that right now um, in Ukraine. We pray, Lord, for your people there, that you would encourage them, that you would not only keep them safe physically, but, Lord, that you would even use this for your gospel to spread, not just there, but even into Russia and around the world. Lord, we join with our brothers and sisters in this global uh, uh, community of faith, and we lift them up. Thank you, God, that you see those needs, and you see each and every one of those people. We commit them to you in Christ's name. Amen. So, hey, I should also mention, too, that a member of our church printed up some kind of uh, Ukraine flags, a sticker. Um, you're welcome to take one of those as kind of a reminder to be praying and, and as a show of solidarity. And so we encourage you um, to do that as you're dismissed today. So, all right. Well, hopefully you have your Bibles open, your message notes out. Um, but as we get going, I don't know if you know this, but Janie and I are kind of in this new phase of life. It's not exactly new. We've been in it for a little bit. But it is this phase known as the empty nest. And so when your kids are little, you long for the day, right? You just really can't wait for that day. Um, I'll be honest, now that it's here, we really just miss them um, a lot. But one of the, the strange phenomena about watching your kids kind of enter into that phase is seeing them like step across the threshold to become full functioning adults. And sometimes it's a one step forward and two steps back or two steps forward, one step back. But to see them uh, becoming adults is just really uh, an amazing thing. Now, becoming an adult has always been a challenging thing, right? 
Yet we know, study after study is showing us that today's young adults, today's 20-year-olds, are just growing up, stepping into adulthood at a much slower pace than generations um, before them. In fact, there's a word um, that is used to describe this phenomena. You can see it up there on the screen. It is the word adulting. Do you guys know this word adulting? It means any sort of behavior um, that is either seen as grown up or responsible, when a young person does that, they are uh, adulting. If you have someone who's struggling with that, you could get them this book, Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 uh, Easy Steps, which kind of easy-ish steps. They're not, yeah, they're not easy. Let's be honest with that. Um, But that's the point. They're kind of difficult things. So adulting can be tough because when you're adulting, you have to show up to work every day, on time, it's rough. You have to pay your bills on time. You have to clean and cook, and you can't do Topper Ramen every day or play video games every day. But here's the deal. Here at First Baptist, we have got some great young adults. Um, and so just to kind of investigate this a little bit, I showed up at our Unite Young Adults group last week to talk to them about what are some of the most difficult things about adulting. Here's what I found out. Let's take a look. All right. Hey, we're here with a Unite Young Adults group. Um, And we are talking about adulting. And so, Abigail, what's the hardest thing about adulting? The hardest thing about adulting for me is really time management. It's just hard to schedule all the things I have in my life. You want to say hi to your mom? Hi, Mom. (laughs) I'm Matthew Litchman, and the hardest thing about adulting is remembering how to write a check. Mm. Uh, the check? Don't worry, you can just Venmo me. It's cool. I can do that. Hi, my name is Sean Campbell. I'm the director of Young Adults. And the hardest part of adulting is those young adults who are not adulting. (laughs) My name's JC. I'm 24. And the hardest thing about being an adult is trying to decide whether to watch Hulu or Netflix. Hi, I'm Andrew Brum. And I realized the hardest part about adulting is 6.30 isn't early enough. 6.30 6.30 a.m. Yeah. 6.30 is early. I know. I'm trying to collect my words, so I really am being put on the spot right now. Being put on the spot, that is the hardest thing about adulting right now. Dude, that's actually a good one. A lot of that's people really would have that. Speaking, that's a good one. <laughs> I'm Jonas Sonner, and the hardest part of adulting is the toilets, they don't clean themselves. It's true. Hi, I'm Jonah Keller, and the hardest thing about being an adult is losing your social life. (laughs) My name is Nate, and the hardest part about growing up is keeping up with all the hippity-hoppity-bippity-bop and slang these youngsters and whippersnappers are coming up with. Dang it, I messed up. (laughs) My name is Nate, and the hardest part about growing up is keeping up with all the hippity-hoppity-bippity-boppy slang these whippersnappers are coming up with these days. I'm here with my friend Ben Ling. What's the hardest thing about being an adult? I would say I don't know who to root for in the Super Bowl. Ben, it says it on your shirt, the Patriots. I'm Mike, and I work with Unite, and the hardest thing for me is finding other people my age who want to hang out with me. Good. (laughs) 
All right, so there you go. As I said, adulting is hard. Well, hey, I want to take a minute and bring that up because as we continue in this study in the book of 1 Peter, what we're going to see today is that Peter specifically calls this group, remember this group that he's writing to, they are scattered, but God's elected exiles. So these are people that have been chased out of their home, uh, away, living in foreign lands, and he's writing to them to encourage them to grow up. That's really the challenge that they're going to, he's going to give to them to grow up. Now, at least for me, when I think of someone telling me or telling someone to grow up, you think of that as coming in kind of a harsh or an angry tone, right? Like, you better grow up, you kids. I'm not exactly sure that is what Peter's tone is. Because here's what you need to do. You need to remember the context of this book and what Peter is writing to and specifically who he's writing to. He's writing to this group of people that, as we said, is living away from their homes. They're living as exiles. They're not immigrants trying to fit in there. They're not tourists just passing through. They're living as exiles there, and they're facing a consistent persecution and challenges in their Christian faith. And Peter just understands that if people like that in a place like that are really going to make it, and they're not only just going to survive, but they're going to thrive as God's people in that kind of atmosphere, that they're going to need to step up their maturity. They're going to need to go to kind of the next level in their maturity. They're going to need to, as he says, grow up. Now, candidly, as one of your pastors, I would say the same is true for the days that we live in, right? As Steve mentioned last week, the Christian faith in America is being pushed farther and farther to the margins. There are more and more people who are even looking down or critical on Christian faith. For, for a, a, as a, a church, uh, for us to, to stand for Christ, to, to live out those things, we can't just continue on in the same way like nothing's changed in our culture, right? That's not going to produce the result that we want or that God wants, right? For us to experience the same kind of thing that Peter was challenging his people to, uh, we are going to have to grow up. We're going to have to take next steps in maturity. This kind of consumer Christianity that's been very popular in the United States for the last maybe 40 or 50 years, um, where everybody just kind of expects that you feed me, you meet my needs, it's all about me, um, that is not going to cut it. Uh, for Christians to thrive in this climate, to really make a difference, it's going to have to, we're going to have to do what Peter says. We're going to have to grow up, take those next steps of maturity. But here's the good news. Really, that's what the book of 1 Peter is about. How do you live as God's people under those kind of circumstances? And today's passage is a terrific one because he gives us really not only some very practical, but kind of some non-negotiable steps if we're going to be those kind of people that take that next step in our faith. And so let's just jump into those, uh, starting in 1 Peter chapter 2, our passage is verses 1 through 10, and we're going to begin by looking at the fact that I grow up in my faith when... I get rid of the sins that hold me back. So the first thing that Peter addresses is, if you're going to grow up, you've got to get rid of the sins that hold you back. And so it begins in verse 1 saying this, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may what? Grow up. Grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
And so Peter jumps into this new section by listing these five specific sins that he says if you're going to have to get rid of if you're going to grow up in these things. Now, no one believes that Peter, when he lists those five sins, is, is giving a comprehensive list of everything that, that they struggle with. Maybe these are things that were causing conflict in the church. Maybe they were things that they used to be known for, and they were kind of stepping forward, but then stepping back into them. We don't know that. But when you look at that list, you might see things that, that you struggle with, and you might want to say, those are the things I need to move past. Malice, deceit or dishonesty, hypocrisy, saying I'm one thing but being something else, envy, slander, and those are all things that we need to get rid of. But maybe you look at that list and and you think about this command to get rid of sins that hold us back in a a much broader uh, sense, and you think about other things that are on your list. The reality is, as followers of Christ, we have to check our life, right? We've got to examine our, our lives, and all of us should be aware of areas that we want to grow in, areas that we want to leave behind past sins. So I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's lust, or maybe it's, it's greed. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's abusing alcohol or abusing drugs. Marijuana use is just rampant these days, not just among kids, but among adults, and it's so destructive. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's not honoring God in your relationships. I don't know what it is. But the point is, if we're going to go up to this new level of maturity that God has for us, we've got to be serious about leaving behind our past sins. We've got to get rid of those things and make those changes. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot here at church, and we believe it, is that God loves us no matter what right? God loves us even when we're still sinners. We sang that song today. God so loved the world that he gave us his son. The scripture says that that he gave us his son even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we talk about that and rightly so. But here's the thing. God loves us so much that he loves us while we're sinners, but we need to also remember this. God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to stay stuck in those things. God loves us enough to help us become better, to move past those things things. And some of us need to hear that. They need to hear, not only does God love me in in my stuff, but he loves me enough to help me get past that stuff when I surrender to him. So when Peter's talking in this section about growing up, you get the idea that there must be kind of people in the church that, that are kind of stuck as spiritual infants, right? They're not growing up. They're not moving on to the next stage in their faith. And so he's afraid that they're not going to really be able to thrive in this, you know, adverse culture that they're living in. And so I was thinking a little bit about that, and I was thinking about young children um, in, any, in any age. And uh, young children uh, have some things about them that are obviously unique to young children, but you hope they're going to grow out of them, right? They're, they're fine when they're little, but you kind of hope that they're going to grow out of these things. So I just made a list of some of the things that little kids are kind of known for and see if you would agree with, with these things. So little kids, not to pick on little kids, but when they're young, they're known for being unstable in their emotions, right? So little kids can go from laughing to crying to a temper tantrum in like that quick. Why? Because they're not governed by logic. They're governed by their emotions and kind of whatever emotions f- fly by them is kind of what drives their life. Little kids can also be insecure. 
What do I mean by that? If you're a parent and you've ever struggled to, to drop your, your two-year-old off at the, the two-year-old class out there, you, you would understand this because we've got a great two-year-old class out there. The teachers are awesome. They have a great time out there. It's wonderful. But sometimes kids will cry because they, they just don't want to be away from mom and dad. And, and maybe what's going on in their head is if mom and dad, if I can't see mom and dad, how do I know that they're going to come back for me? How do I know that they still care about me? How do I know that when I can't see them that they still love me? And the reality is a lot of us approach our relationship with God like that, kind of like an infant. Unless God is giving us every little thing that we want, we think, has God forgotten me? Is God coming back for me? Does God even care about me anymore? And kids can be very insecure. Kids can also be super gullible, right? Kids can be super gullible. They all, you know, you ever get a kid to fall for the I got your nose trick? Um, yeah, they'll, they'll do that. Um, kids have all kind, believe all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, in the New Testament, one of the common commands for Christians is to not fall into false teaching, to beware of false teachers that come along that either teach false things or get you to focus on the wrong things. Consistently, in almost every book of the New Testament, there is a warning for Christians to be on guard against that. Like in Ephesians 4, Paul says it like this. He says, don't be like little children that are tossed around and blown here and there by false teaching and deceitful scheming. Kids can be very possessive, right? What's the first word that, that kids often learn? Mine. Yeah, so it's not just my kids. Yeah, mine, mine, mine. It's like they come from the factory with their little greed setting already on high, and, and they just are possessive. Uh, they're also very self-focused. They're not thoughtful of others necessarily. It's all about me, myself, and I. They're focused on immediate gratification. They don't have a sense of patience, or I can wait for this, or I have to suffer for a time. No, they want what they want, and they want it now. But if you look at that list, and I imagine you understand where I'm going with this, this doesn't only describe children, right? Peter's talking about growing past being little children, but a lot of the things on that list describe Christians as well. And it's okay when you're a new Christian to be struggling with those or other kind of areas like that. That's the way it works, right? We struggle and then we move forward. But can I just be candid with you? If you've been a Christian for years, and some of those things on the list still describe your spiritual life or the way that you approach the world. I think we need to hear Peter's words to grow up, to take that next step of maturity. God's got more for you than just floundering around as a spiritual infant. So he says, if you're going to grow up, you've got to get rid of the sins that hold you back. Second thing is this. He says, you've got to take in the proper nutrition of God's Word. So you've got to get rid of this stuff, but you've got to also take some good stuff in. So in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, he says it like this, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. And when he talks about spiritual milk there, he's talking about the Word of, of God, taking in the Word of God as, as a regular part of your, your nutrition. How do we know this? In the verses just before this, at the end of chapter 1, this is what we read, 1 Peter 1, verses 23 through 25. It says, For you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. So in other words, the Word of God is alive, and the Word of God is lasting. It endures. He says, all people, they're like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Now, the flowers of the field are beautiful for a time. They have all kinds of glory. But he goes on to say this, but the grass withers, and the flowers, no matter how glorious they are, eventually they're going to fall. But the Word of the Lord endures forever. So he says, are you taking in God's Word? So as, as babies, babies grow and they mature when they drink milk, right? And not just occasionally, they need a, a steady and a regular diet of, of, of milk. I, I don't know about your kids. My kids seem to especially want that in the middle of the night, um, and they would just want that nutrition. But think about this. What if you decided that, hey, I'm going to only feed my child one day a week, and actually even less than that. I'm going to only feed my child one hour of one day a week. Obviously, that child's not going to thrive. That child may not even survive. And yet the example, obviously, is how can we take that kind of spiritual nutrition in? If, if the only time I'm interacting with God's Word is when I come to church, it's great that we come to church, and it's great that we spend that hour a week, but we're not going to thrive. You guys, we can't do things the way we have always done them. The world is changing, and as God's people, we're called to stand. We're called to grow up, and one of the things we're going to have to do is take a much more serious approach to God's Word, where we're digging into it, that we're studying it, that we're talking about it, that we are taking it in. I was thinking a little bit about nutrition, and they, uh, you, you heard that I'm, I'm uh, flying out to Tanzania um, tomorrow. I'm going to teach at the Hope of the Nations Bible um, College for a couple weeks, which is great. I'm uh, thrilled to do that. But one of the things that I admit I am not looking forward to, I don't want to be a complainer, but I'm not looking forward to the food. Um, I'm actually going to be staying with the students at the Bible College, which means rice and beans every day for lunch and dinner. Now, I can do the, the, the rice and beans. I, they're, they're fine, and I don't mean to be ungrateful for that. But the other thing they do is it, it's right along Lake Tanganyika. It's this big, beautiful lake, and they catch these little, I don't even know what they're called, but these little sardine-sized fish. And they don't cook them. They just put them out in the sun to dry. And then they put them on top of your rice and beans as a nutritious treat. And you guys, honestly, I can barely get it down. I, I'm, I'm always willing to, like, try a little bit. But I think about that, I'm like, oh my goodness. And so half my suitcase is packed with granola bars and beef jerky and all kinds of stuff because I know proper nutrition is important. And again, that's the point that Peter's making. In the same way, spiritually, you've got to take in the, the right stuff. You are what you eat is the principle. So the Bible consistently speaks of God's Word as spiritual food. It's kind of interesting, right? When Jesus is out in the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil, one of the things that he replies to the devil is, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You live by the word of God, he says. Peter here refers to it as milk. Elsewhere, the Bible calls itself meat. Sometimes it calls itself bread. It's sweeter than honey. All references to the, the Bible, God's Word being like food to us. I love what Jeremiah says. This, this is great. I, I long for this to be true in my life, and I long for it to be true for us as a church as well. Jeremiah says it like this. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. 
And again, I believe as Christians living in this day, as exiles and strangers, we're going to have to have a new love and a new seriousness and a new devotion to God's Word. It's how we're going to grow. We can't just treat our relationship with God's Word as a casual thing. So as I said, his challenges grow up, and he's given us all these little steps that you can do. You got to get rid of the sins. You got to take in the proper nutrition. The third thing he says is you got to make sure that you're building your life on the right foundation. And specifically, he's talking here about building your life on the foundation of Christ. So let's go back into our text here. Verses four through um, eight read like this. Peter says, as you come to him, talking about Jesus, as you come to Jesus, the living stone Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious— But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So that's kind of a confusing passage there. There's actually a lot going on, a a lot of different metaphors, and and Peter the fisherman is, you know, has given us all of this kind of uh, language there. Um, So it can be kind of difficult to keep up with. In fact, I read one commentary this week that said about those verses, if these verses seem complicated to you, it's because they are complicated. So what I want to do is just real slowly kind of talk through those. I want to make five kind of observations specifically about Jesus, who is the main point of those verses um, that we just read. So the first observation from those verses, and I just think this is so cool and so relevant, that Peter calls out Jesus as one who is a true and greater stone. Why do I say that? Because remember, Peter, what does Peter's name mean? It means the rock, right? And that, that wasn't his original name. His parents gave him the name Simon. But we talked about Jesus sees something in Simon that, that, that there's more to it. And so he calls him out and he says, I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you the rock. And what an awesome nickname that is and what a big deal that is to be called the rock. And yet here, Peter starts talking about Jesus and he doesn't even put himself in the conversation. In fact, it's significant that he doesn't use the the Greek word that is his name, Petros. He uses a a word that's much bigger than that. It's the the word lithos to describe Jesus as the stone. It's not just a little old rock. He doesn't even mention himself. Jesus is like this whole nother category, this whole nother kind of, of stone, right? He's so much bigger. He's the true and he's the greater stone. In fact, he's the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the the most important part of, of any building. And not just any cornerstone, but Peter calls him the precious cornerstone. Why is that significant? The precious cornerstone. Well, here in these verses, he's quoting Isaiah 28, verse 16. Uh, That's not as important as it is to know that Isaiah 28 has always been thought of as a messianic text. So it's one that Isaiah wrote to the people when they were facing hard times, when they were outcasts in their society. And he says, you know, you're facing tough times now, but one day there's going to be someone who comes and he's going to be like a stone laid in Zion and he's going to be the cornerstone. And the people long for that day because when the Messiah came, he was going to set all things right, right? And he was going to square things up and he was going to be this cornerstone. 
And for 600 years, they watched and they waited for Isaiah's words to come true. And with expectation and with longing, they wondered when would this be fulfilled. And now Peter starts to talk about it as if it's been fulfilled, as if all your longings and all your questions and all the instability and all the uncertainty, you know what you have now? You have a rock. You have a precious cornerstone. That's why it's so precious that it's been fulfilled, and and Jesus is the one that ultimately fulfills this. Of course, the cornerstone, as we said, is the the most significant stone of of any building. It's the first stone that you place, that cornerstone, and then you build the rest of the foundation off that. If your cornerstone is is weak and kind of flimsy, your building is going to be weak and flimsy. If your cornerstone is not straight, your building's not going to be straight. But no, in Jesus, we have a precious cornerstone, someone that you could build your building on and know that it's going to stand firm. As I was thinking a little bit about this, I was thinking about the Millennium Tower over in San Francisco. Are you guys aware of this, this building, the Millennium Tower? Um, so the Millennium Tower, it's the one there in the middle, uh, was built, I think it was completed in 2009, so a little over two year, 10 years now. Um, the total cost was over $400 million to build this building. It's 58 stories tall, um, apartments sold for in the tens of millions, a lot of famous people, Joe Montana bought one, Hunter Pence, other people like that, uh, bought these super expensive uh, apartments there. And then they discovered that the building's sinking, right? On one side, on one corner, the, the building's sinking. As you can see in the little drawing there, and I think this is a little bit old, it's sunk 17 or 18, I think it's closer to 20 inches now that it's sunk. And if it's 20 inches at the bottom, it's even more exaggerated at the top. They're saying that the, actually the elevator, they're not sure the elevator is going to continue to work. They wonder if this building ultimately is going to stand. So they decided they were going to invest an extra $100 million in solidifying the foundation. They were going to do some extra foundation work there. Problem is, they started doing all this work on the foundation, and it only made it worse. It just kind of stirred things up down there on the bottom, and it started to tilt a little more. Uh, I'm not even 100% sure what they're going to do with this thing. It, it's tragic. But it reminds us of the simple truth that unless the foundation is strong, life is going to tilt, and life is not going to make sense, and life is going to be in danger of even falling. And so it begs the question that Peter is asking us, what are you building your life on? What's the foundation of your life? Because he's a precious cornerstone. But not just that. The next thing that Peter says is he is a living stone. I love this, that he's a living stone. Why is this significant? Already in chapter 1, you remember uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about that Peter calls Jesus not just the living stone, but he calls him the living hope. So Jesus is the living hope. And then last week, we saw that, that J- Peter calls Jesus the living word. So now he's the living hope. He's the living word. He's the, the living stone. And do you see the point that Peter's trying to emphasize here? The guy is alive, right? I'm not a big expert on stones. I'm not a geologist, but I know this much. Stones are not alive. If you have a stone that is alive, you have something special on your hands. And the point that Peter is making is this is not just some other wannabe run-of-the-mill Messiah. This is not just some other faith healer or great teacher. He was dead, and now he is alive. And so as you go out there and you're living for Christ, even in this culture that seems so crazy to you, you have a firm foundation that you can stand on. And that foundation is that Jesus is the resurrected living stone and hope 
and word. He is alive. By Jesus' death on the cross, it demonstrates God's love to us. By Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it demonstrates his power. And as we go out into this world, we need that power and we have it. So build your life, Peter says, on the living stone. Now, along those lines, there's going to be some people that, that, that either don't buy it or they're going to reject it. Peter says there's going to be some that stumble over this, either can't believe it or won't believe it, and, and they reject it. And so we sh- shouldn't be surprised when that happens. It breaks our heart because eternity is tied up in that decision to accept Christ as, as who He is. But Peter says some are going to reject Him, but, but you don't have to stand firm. In fact, the last thing he says is that Jesus is the living stone, but he says as His followers— you're also living stones that go into making up this spiritual house, is what he says. And so it's the same kind of idea where we see that the church is talked about as the body of Christ. Because in the body of Christ, we know that every part of the body is important. The, the hands are important, the feet are important, the ears are important. Everybody plays an important part. This is the same kind of thing that Peter is saying here, but he's talking about a building where every stone that makes up this building is important. And that's what Peter describes us as. And so if there's a stone that's weak, we need to come alongside and strengthen that stone. If there's a stone that's missing, well, the, the, the building's going to be weaker. You've got to find that stone and, and get it there. If there's a, a, a stone that's struggling, you come alongside and you help it because together we make up this spiritual household with our foundation built on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the living stone. Well, hey, we are just about done, but there's two more really great verses. In fact, I think maybe some of the the most important verses in the whole uh, book are these last couple of ones that we're going to look at today. And so again, kind of the the concept of this is is Peter knew that they were going to have to, to live for Christ at a whole new level. And so he challenges them to grow up. And he says, you do that when you get rid of your sins that are holding you back and you take in proper nutrition and you build your life on the foundation, the right foundation, which is, which is Christ. But then the last thing he says is you also have to step in to your identity, your true identity of who you are as a child of God. And he gives them these two amazing verses. In fact, they're going to put it up there on the screen. And why don't we read these together? I'll read it, but would you just read these verses with me? First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 go like this. Let's read along. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this concept of living as distinct people is just going to become more and more important uh, as we keep going through First Peter. That's really what it's all about. How do you live as, as different in this, this world? How do you stand out as God's people? Um, he has big things for you. But to do that, you have to step into your identity of who you are. So he talks about being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your God's special possession to declare his praises, all of these things. And so when we talk about our identity and stepping into our identity, identity is kind of our true identity. how we truly define who we are, where I get my, my value from. And we might know the words to say, but when things really get tough, where do I really draw my value from? The truth is most of us spend our lifetime asking this question in one form or another. We ask the question, am I enough? 
right? Is who I am enough? Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I skinny enough? Am I a good enough husband? Am I a good enough parent? Am I a good enough wife? Am I good enough in these things? And all of us kind of have those insecurities, and and then we take those insecurities, and we live in a culture where there's a multi-billion dollar advertising industry that is all about answering that question, no, you are not enough. You need this. You need that to help make yourself enough. And then we live in this day where we go on social media and we see that everybody else seems to be enough and their life is great and their kids are great and their life is together. And it's no uh, wonder that there's so much anxiety and depression and insecurity and all of those things are at an all-time high, both inside and outside of the church. We're asking that question, am I enough? What is my identity? And Peter is just so clear here. He says, if you're going to really survive in this age, you've got to know who you are. And this is who you are. You're God's people. You're a priesthood. You, You shine Christ to other people. You're a special and a holy nation. You are all these things. And so Peter's saying, this is how you build your life on those things. And, and, and as we just close here, can I just, I'll, let me just ask you a question like this. As you think about what your identity is or what you build your life on, let me just ask it like this. When things get tough, when life starts to crumble around you, what do you fall back on? And it may be big kind of global stuff that we're facing now, or maybe it's just the reality of, of you know, life that seems to crumble around us. When things get tough, what do you fall back to? Is your thought is, well, you know, things are getting kind of tough, but at least I've got, you know, this much money in the bank, or I've got this possession, this house, or this, that. Well, if that's the case, then your identity and your thing you're building your life on is, is money. Is it, well, hey, at least I've got a, a family that, that loves me. And that's super important, and that's wonderful if that's the case. But even a great family is not a cornerstone. It's not the ultimate thing we built our life on or find our identity in. Is it that maybe I've got some certain skills or certain talents or I'm good at this because uh, that can't be something we build our life on. It's maybe I'm just a good person, but all these things, if our first thought are, are those things, those are the things that we're building our life on. And Peter says, no, your first thought needs to be, I'm sending you out and it's going to be tough out there, but I am God's chosen people. I am a holy nation. I belong to Christ and he is the cornerstone that I build my life on. Because here's the reality. When that's what we're building our life on, we can face anything. All right, let's pray together. God, thank you so much for uh, just this amazing letter that Peter writes that is so relevant to these times that we live in. And I pray, Lord, that we would take his word seriously and that we would do what it takes to, to, to move into growing up. Lord, we know adulting can be kind of hard sometimes, and so we need your help as we move towards you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here today because some are really struggling and some are feeling lonely and overwhelmed and crushed under the weight of sin. And Father, we need your help. Thank you that you are there for us. Help us, Lord, to build our life on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Help us to be a church family that loves one another, that comes alongside and strengthens and encourages one another as we live this life for you. I thank you, Lord, for who you are. Help us to live out those things to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.